Ayo, friends, family, and enduring podcast listeners. Can you imagine it? This is already episode 30 of this podcast. I just want to say a big thank you. Super grateful for every one of you guys listening out there. And I want to give you guys a little bit of update of what's happening. And as you know, the podcast has been a little bit irregular. I try to get it to a two-weeks cadence, um, but it proved to be quite a lot harder when I'm trying to run a company at the same time. So on that note, on the company with the 2D animation studio that I started called Sage Animation, uh, business is well. I have uh, secured some big clients, um, some airlines and a big hospitality group, which um, the video, when the video is out, I will definitely let you guys know. Um, that said, one of the hardest things on earth, uh, at least for me right now, is to figure out the hiring game. And I've um, been trying for the longest to find a project manager and I have since uh, then fired two and I got fired by one and in the midst of another round try and find another round of amazing rockstar project manager but quite hard so far um that say the podcast will be taking a short break I am flying to California over in November uh, going to the U.S., um, the main thing of the trip is to really test out whether the business will die and fall apart uh, when I'm over in a different time zone and to see if this digital nomad lifestyle is possible or is a myth. And I will also be trying my best um, to get a van and turn it into a mobile home. Um, I don't know how that will happen yet, but um, the plan is maybe to go work for some... Um, what is that called? Uh, van customization workshop for free, and hopefully in return, I met I can use their tools in the off hours to rig up my own van. How excited would that be? Um, so the podcast, I don't know what will happen to the podcast. It might take a little short break, or it might just go nuts when I meet if I meet if I do meet a lot of cool people over there. Um, so yeah, in the meantime. Uh, just to let you know, I'm alive and well, and if this podcast is taking a shot deep, just to know that I am building a mobile home, a little van, uh, a van mobile home. Uh, pictures will be, of course, up on uh, Facebook. Uh, so yeah, I'll see you there. Alright, today on the show, we have Dr. Muni Dasa Winslow. He's a psychiatrist and the executive director of Promises Healthcare. He has been practicing psychiatry since 1988 and is known for his work in addiction medicine and impulse control disorder. He was also responsible for setting up addiction management department at the Institute of Mental Health Singapore. And his last appointment over there was as the chief of department of addiction medicine. Dr. Winslow is credited as Master Addiction Counselor and a Clinical Supervisor. So in this conversation, we spoke about some simple yardstick to test if one has an addiction, the framework recovery process for addictions, Dr. Winslow's views on ADHD, and much, much more. So without further ado, 
please enjoy this conversa- conversation com- 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 conversation with Dr. Munidasa Winslow. Hi, thank you so much for taking your time out. I am really excited to speak with you today. It has been a long time coming. <laughs> yes, nice to meet you again. Uh, how should we get started today? I was reading up so much about you and you have such a long history uh, with psychology and the different facets of it. So maybe we can rewind back a little bit and talk about your first start on like why did you choose um, the field of study when you were in the US? Psychiatry. Yeah. Uh, well, I chose psychiatry more out of uh, curiosity because my dad was one of the first uh, psychiatrist in Singapore. He went for training in 1946 or 47, sent by the Straits Settlements government. However, I was the last child and so uh, by the time I was seven years old, he had already retired. But I always used to see his old patients coming to the gate and either singing or talking loudly. And <laughs> so uh, good, were, good memories. Well, interesting it. memories, oh. let's say. Uh, I always wanted to know what on earth it was that he did and I didn't have a clue. So, at that time, he was medical superintendent of Woodbridge Hospital, but he retired when my, as far as I recall, uh, in my whole growing up years, all he was was gardener, uh, house person, and a person who takes us out for outings on the bus. Wait, so... Well, how did that end up to becoming the serpent? I was interested in, in knowing what he did because he died when I was in medical school. And so uh, I was always very interested in, in what on earth it was did that... sort of nudge you into the field? Or? He, he tried very hard to nudge all the children not to do medicine and not to do psychiatry especially. <laughs> What's his? <laughs> but you know, the more you, human nature being what it is, yeah. the more you tell somebody not to do something, the more they're interested. Oh, it's, it's there must that... be something really <laughs> interesting back there, or there must be something really uh, wild and wonderful that people don't That's want to do. That's what we do in our teenage years, isn't it? It's almost like telling somebody, don't do this. Uh, and uh, they they want to do it. <laughs> and and I mean, like, it just reminded me of reverse psychology. Like, how yeah. did that? I mean, do you have any uh, like idea how did that term came about? Like, I think it is it is a clear term because the more you try to persuade people uh, not to do something, they always curiosity starts to to play a part. They are interested in why uh, people are telling them no. It's, it's the same as in our government situation these days. Nobody really accepts the official government line. And the more that you sell a an uh, uh, authoritarian line or authoritative line, the more people think that there's a lot behind it. And they will go and, and try to come out with all kinds of ideas and uh, new things to say about it. And it gets worse in our current connectivity-oriented uh, world where... Social media works faster than the blink of an eye. <laughs> and also uh, adding to the fact of a lot of uh, conspiracy theory. Uh, yes. I, I think maybe more so in Singapore, not as much than somewhere else in the world. Well, I was fortunate that when I was growing up, we didn't have conspiracy theories. We were all uh, kind of working in the same direction. In Singapore, when I was growing up, was a, a new nation and we were trying to find our space in the world. We definitely didn't think of ourselves as first world, but uh, third world. Going on to second world, maybe. <laughs> um, 
<clears throat> and we were trying to catch up with the first world. And so a lot of it was training and uh, uh, new things that would bring us on par with uh, people in the West or with the US or the Australia or the UK. And um, anyway, going back to your original question about why I got into psychiatry, it was because of curiosity. I wanted to know what my dad was doing. Uh, I tried for four years to get a, a posting in psychiatry and I couldn't because yeah, because they said that uh, all the postings were full. And the only way to get a posting in psychiatry was to become a psychiatric trainee. And so I applied to be a trainee uh, and uh, got accepted. Of course, the, the senior doctors thought that I was a bit crazy because they had offered me orthopedic surgery first, you know, such a glamorous oh, yes. field. And it says, and you, we offer you orthopedic surgery and you want to do psychiatry? It's okay, you must be mad. <laughs> so those are the kinds of things. I, and I went into it actually without knowing too much about it. In the old days, in the old days for me means in 1980s or, or whatever, um, Woodbridge Hospital or IMH was still in the old hospital. It was a 1928 building, uh, state mental institution type. Really relaxing because each ward had a one-acre field in front of it. Oh. And so the patients were quite relaxed. They could walk around and you could see the, the patterns because some of them have their own parts every day that they walk. Um, it, was, it was primarily at that time severe mental illnesses. So mainly people with uh, severe intellectual disabilities or people with severe forms of psychosis, depression, uh, or dementia. And uh, over the years, of course, things have changed dramatically and a lot more. But yes, in the old days, everybody would be scared to death of coming to uh, Woodbridge. I think right now, there's a social connotation is still that, you know, um, people are just scared to go to hospital in general. No, they're scared to go to a mental hospital. They're much better off now because in every general hospital in Singapore, there is a psychiatric ward. Mm. And so there's the opportunity to to have a little bit less stigma when seeing. And you, you find it's true because most people don't mind if they have a physical illness and explaining that, you know, I've got diabetes or I've got thyroid problem or something. And nobody seems to blink in uh, talking about that. But if you say, oh, I, I have depression and I'm struggling with it, you suddenly see the yeah. other person freeze. And oh. I, I still remember I used to go with my wife for, she, she was a dancer and she did went for dance conferences and we'd be sitting there and everybody would be talking uh, and joking about everything under the sun. And then they say, so what do you do? And I say, I'm a psychiatrist. And then suddenly there's this freeze motion where... <laughs> You can see them see them literally trying to figure out whether they said the right thing or not. <laughs> There's no right thing or wrong thing. People yeah. are people. We we express life as we see it. Mm. And maybe we'll dive in a little bit more on you know after you decided to continue, you know, finishing the training and you know got in accepted to NUS, spend No, I think I got accepted to 
uh, training. It's not NUS. Oh. It is a Ministry of Health uh, had a traineeship scheme for whichever hospital you're in. Right. So you could subspecialize or specialize in various fields, whether it is orthopedic surgery, surgery. And you did. Uh, and I chose psychiatry. Yes. How long did you need to do that for before actually getting to the study? It was part? at least three years. Wow. Yes. Three additional years, but I had spent four years before that as a medical officer first. Mm-hmm. Um, it was really interesting because uh, it was different. Uh, it was not all about calcul- calculating medications or doing surgery or anything else, but it was about um, people's emotions, feelings, thought processes. And did that, that didn't deter you of you know furthering? I mean, obviously, like it, you the first few, extended for one the year. The first few years were actually quite depressing because uh, maybe it was the kind of patients that you I was seeing at that stage of training. But um, for a lot of the patients, no matter what you did, they they still were pretty depressed or still were pretty psychotic. And I think we were seeing the 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 most severe. Wow. Population at and that what time. made you want to continue then? Well, I actually wanted to run away and stop doing psychiatry and become a GP or something. And then I discovered uh, addiction care, or I discovered uh, alcoholism and people with uh, addictive disorders. Is that what you call uh, pathological behavior? It's a big word well, right here. <laughs> I wouldn't know about pathological because we use those words a little bit loosely <laughs> in society. <laughs> okay. Um, I think the the issue is looking at when I when I got into addictions and that also came by accident more than anything else. Mm-hmm. The, the the doctor who was actually treating alcoholism in Singapore was going to private practice, and the number two was going away for training to Mayo Clinic. Oh, and so they needed somebody to to treat alcoholics uh, or look after the alcohol program. Right. And the head of hospital at that time looked around at the new, newly graduated trainees and said, well, we need somebody to look after the alcoholics. Uh, most of the alcoholics look like they're Indian. You look like you're Indian. So go look <laughs> after <right> them. <laughs> <laughs> and there was, there was, was that the offer? I mean, well, I think, I'm sure that that's not what I think it's a little bit more than that. But, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it was a start and, and, from the start, when I got into it, I, I was kind of hooked because it is so interesting. Why do people develop compulsive behaviors? Why mm. do they move into certain patterns of behavior and find it difficult to yeah. extricate or get we, themselves out? We definitely, out? I definitely love to like, like, like expand and, and uh, unpack that a little bit um, mm. more because I feel that a lot of people um, just not knowing that they have maybe an addiction or obsession and just maybe there's some yardstick or tools we can know for someone uh, in that nature. Um, but let's maybe to set the tone of this conversation, there's a lot of um, fields inside psychology. And uh, one of the biggest thing uh, when I speak to our, our, our mutual friend, and it's just like, well, you know, psychology, no, psychiatrist is different maybe we just want to let people know the the, the difference and also uh, expand that a little bit more on I, I think the, only, the main difference between a psychiatrist and a psychologist is that a psychiatrist is a medically trained doctor hmm. and so we have to go through medical training first theoretically speaking we can do surgery or we can give medications that's the main difference uh, because it's the mental health and your brain we generally try not to do surgery anymore <laughs> 
I think it'll be bad for your health if I did any surgery in your brain. <laughs> so, in, in, in other words, like, a psychiatrist uh, is a more bigger umbrella where psychologist sits under, would you say? No, not really sits under because they, it's different specialities. You see, in, in psychology, you could have gone not only into just clinical psychology, which is behavioral uh, in nature where you help people to change attitudes, feelings, thoughts. Yeah, we're talking about that's like Sigmund Freud. That's psychology. And, and uh, yes, clinical psychologists, but they do mainly talk therapies, psychotherapists, for example. Mm-hmm. And what they do is um, they help people to understand themselves, understand what are the inflection points and how to make changes where necessary. And... Uh, then there's occupational psychology where you understand organizations and how organizations take place. And so they have them all over Singapore in Ministry of Education, uh-huh. in Ministry of uh, Defense. Yes. Oh, that's the first time I've heard of that. That's right. right. So it's how organizations uh, function within themselves. How so it's kind of like a business unit, like a specialist To unit. a certain extent, you, you it, it helps to understand... And the organizational philosophies of a, a, a company. That's interesting. Um, and so then there's educational psychology. Oh, okay. uh, educational psychologists would do a lot of testing so that they know whether you have uh, learning disabilities, for example, dys, dyslexia, dyspraxia, mm. uh, difficulty in counting, thinking. ADHD, yeah. all the the childhood things which will interfere with your ability to function in an educational setting. So occupational, clinical, occupational, and educational so far, and then there's, there's a lot. There's, there's a lot. I think you have to look that up. Yeah, no, no, see, no, so no again, you're right. And then there's military field. psychologists, and but like, let's just say for the layman mm. uh, who who wants to get treatment. Like they would not need to. So a, a lay person who thinks that they have an issue that they'd like to unpack or deal with, you see either a psychologist or a psychiatrist. Um, again, different psychologists have different specialities. For example, they are marriage and family therapists. And marriage and family therapists deal in the psychotherapy mainly of communication, relationships, and all those stuff. Yep. And uh, if that is the stress point in your life at that moment where oh, I go home and I feel miserable because I know we're going to fight, then it's probably time to go see a marriage and family therapist or somebody who specializes in family therapy or is able to deal with that. Or sometimes one party says, I think you're a narcissistic PD or a personality or you have an antisocial personality, please go get help for yourself. If not, I don't want any part of you. Right. Then still see either a psychiatrist or a psychologist. So when do people come to you? I, I have no clue. <laughs> people, people come to me because they've heard of me or okay. they, they get referred to me by someone. Yes. And uh, again, it's a reputational thing because as far as we go in Singapore, how do you choose someone to go and see. I think that the way that most people do it is that they ask friends, they seek advice from mm-hmm. colleagues, from pastors or other people, uh, and they, they make a decision on uh, who they want to go and see. And then they go see someone, and within the first session, it's the same as for us. When we see someone, we are assessing, okay, is this a normal person? Does they have? Do they have... Uh, any things that would impact their lives or 
disrupt the way that they can function normally. Yeah. And the person is doing the same thing to the psychiatrist. Who on earth is this person? Is, is it somebody I can click with? Is it somebody I can share my deep, dark secrets with? Or is this person scary and I don't want to have anything to do with them? And, and so it's a two-way process. Mm-hmm. And in that interaction, uh, if it clicks, then the person sticks on and stays and uh, gets help for maybe a behavior or thought. And and is there a certain, like, out of all this, I mean, you, you also did a lot of things, but if there's one thing, like, you specialize in that, you know, maybe no one, not, not, not saying no one else in Singapore would do it, but, like, what would be that um, thing? Well, at the moment, I specialize in addictions or compulsive behaviors. Mm-hmm. And it was amazing. When we started, we started only with alcohol, and then we discovered that uh, drug addictions were pretty huge in yeah. Singapore, despite the fact that drugs is a zero tolerance for it in Singapore. There are lots of ways that people seem to get by that. Yes. Um, and it's a huge issue. And why would you do it when everybody is telling you how dangerous it is and that you're going to be sent to jail and be caned and all the rest of the stuff? Wow, yeah. yeah. And and so if, if a person... Um, would have a depression. They would like you. you, you... I treat depression also. Oh, so okay. I'm, I'm a general psychiatrist first. You become a general psychiatrist before you subspecialize. So gotcha. I, I, the three year training was just to become a general psychiatrist. <laughs> then there was another three or four years to become an addiction psychiatrist. I see. And and, and in in your how do what do you think separates a good psych, psychologist psychiatrist from a great I, I think after a while, it, it is uh, the ability to learn from your own mistakes in helping or treating people as well. Uh, intuition plays a large part. Quite often when the person walks through the door within the first uh, 30 seconds, you roughly have an impression of who they are and what they are mm-hmm. and what the major problems are going to be, whether they're going to be restrained, introverted, difficult to uh, wow. deal with or talk to. Yes. Uh, no, I think that's you, where... you read the book Blink or things like that, right? Yes. Right? So it's the same. You go in and into a in a, a blink, you have an intuition of what this is going to be. Is this a real uh, art piece or is this a fake? Yeah, but I mean, I, I understand all that, and I, I think there's in- intricacy into you know like reading someone mm-hmm. when they walk in the door and adjusting your stance to you know maybe the person needs to open up, so you, you should crack okay. certain... So let's put it this way. There is a first intuitive feeling about the person usually. Yeah. But after that intuitive feeling, you have to spend the actual uh, time and effort to be able to get to the root of why the person is like that. Mm-hmm. Now, is this person anxious or nervous because of something that is happening now or is this something that happened in the past? Is this a childhood issue? Is there uh, childhood emotional or sexual or physical abuse? Uh, so there's a huge amount of things to unpack and we just pack it, unpack it uh, gently. We don't always tell the person what we think the first time around yeah. because the same way that I've discovered over time that uh, not everybody tells you everything or not everybody tells you the truth the first time they come and see you. Especially with addictions. When, when patients come and talk to me in addictions, uh, the first time round, we usually take everything with a pinch of salt. 
Mm. Okay, so you may be telling the truth, but I haven't decided how truthful you are yet. Gotcha. Because same way, they have to decide whether they're going to willing they are going to be willing to trust you with their feelings or emotions or anything else that's going on. Mm. And and I think more so the question I was trying to 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 ask is that for a lane man. Um, um, in choosing a, a psychiatrist, other than just the, the gut feel that okay, I, I click with this person, um, is there any other, read up? Yeah. So the things that people do uh, in looking for psychiatrists is they ask for advice. They see whether anybody else has seen a psychiatrist mm-hmm. or a psychologist, whether it was good, whether it worked out. Yeah. Uh, they look up online and read about the client, the the, the psychiatrist or the therapist. And if there's there's a huge amount of material online, I was quite shocked to it. Eh? Oh, uh, you Google yourself? Yes. The, <laughs> first, the first time I Google myself, I said, oh no, people know so much. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, the online world these days, right? Yes. Uh, it goes back, everything all the way back to secondary school and says, oh, uh, this... Uh, Dr. Winslow used to be head prefect of Victoria School. I said, where did this happen? How do people know these kind of things? Someone must have did some research and published it somewhere. That that was uh, OVA or or Victorians Association. (laughs) And and I think um, one of the things uh, you do, and maybe we'll just touch on a little bit, because I think a lot of people are very used to the talk therapy uh, situation. And for, for, for yourself, you actually yeah. subscribe um, drugs use as well. Prescribe, yeah. prescribe. Prescribe, right? sorry. Subscribe. <laughs> I take it myself. <laughs> and in what cases, or, you know, like, would drug be a more effective uh, uh, use other than uh, uh, talk therapy? And okay. also for one to know whether, you know, like, oh, maybe there's this odd other option to consider as well. I think you must realize that in Singapore, people are extremely, extremely conservative. Uh, they are terrified of seeing a psychiatrist in case they find out that there's actually something wrong with them. <laughs> and they're terrified of taking medication. Wouldn't believe how strong the aversion. Don't tell me anything to do, but don't ask me to take medicine because in their minds, probably actually taking a pill or taking medicine means there's something wrong with me. Yeah. And I, I don't understand this because you know people who have diabetes seem to find no problem in taking a diabetic tablet mm. to bring their blood sugar back under control, uh, correct their hormonal imbalances and other things. And why shouldn't it be the same with the mind? It's the same imbalances that we find. For example, a person with depression, the imbalance is thought to be in the serotonin system Mm -hmm. of the left prefrontal cortex. So we are talking about an actual physical and chemical uh, deficiency. There may be many reasons to bring it about, but it's there. And the ways to come out of it, there's medicinal ways, there's physical, and there's, of course, thinking ways too. Mm. And the, the ideal is to be able to use all the tools at your disposal to be able to get a person to be operating at the optimum or best functioning level that you can. Mm. And what, why should we, we settle for anything less? Yeah, so you brought up this um, depression and serotonin thing. I mean... I- are there any other like cases where you know medicines are actually very effective uh, use uh, in mental health? Well, you know this whole theory. In I've been reading things on the internet, and 
Uh, ADHD is a, a case in point. Uh, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. There's huge numbers of articles that say that French don't have it, which I think is rubbish because I treat a lot of people from France who have it. <laughs> and uh, um, I think the threshold for doing something about uh, ADHD is important. If you have it, what are the behavioral or physical ways that you can deal with it? Now, apparently I have some ADD or ADHD, but when I was in school, I never knew about it. But the teachers in primary school, I, had a, I came from a great primary school, Rosite, and the teachers seemed to intuitively know what to do. They made me run six rounds of the field before school every day. <laughs> and so I was tired enough to be able to sit down during class. Okay. And, and, and what would this uh, medication, I mean, you do not need to put a name if you, if you don't want to. But do, no, do Most it, people use, uh, okay, so in, in ADHD, it's a neurodevelopmental disorder, which uh, the brain is a little bit lagging in 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 catching up in its maturity, uh, there's impulsivity, there's difficulties with attention, the attention keeps changing. And, and to me, I find that having ADHD is something great and something good yes. because it allows me to think about so many things, think out of the box. I even read this book that said, if you wanted to start an airline, have ADHD first. Is that, is that, is that Virgin? Or? Sorry, that's Virgin, JetBlue, okay. Asia. <laughs> so, yeah. So it allows you to think outside the box. And I think a lot of the brilliant minds have ADHD. Yeah. And it's seen as a gift and not as a disability. But unfortunately, in our society, again, it's a very conservative Asian society. Oh, no, we can't have that because it will be seen as a disability. It's not a disability. Having something or not having something doesn't make you able or disabled. Mm. What you do with what you have or your talents or your gifts is what makes you either able or disabled. So you mean you brought out the point of ADHD and I guess is is uh, the 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 dysfunction could be also a tool that aids you in what you're pursuing. But once you only know once you know how to use it, it becomes a tool. But before then it, it's a disadvantage. So it's, again, know yourself and know your abilities or your disabilities right. and, and then factor in things like that. So, for example, with ADHD, uh, studies became very interesting. I had to take it in small bite-sized portions, yep. uh, 15, 20 minutes, and then go walk around and think about what I just studied or maybe come back and write a note on what it was uh, or then change topic and do something else and then come back to it. But the difficulty with focusing also meant that I had to put into place uh, targets. For example, write myself a to-do list, uh, what I hope to achieve. Okay, I have, I have, I confess, I have ADHD too. Yeah, well, it's a, it's, it's a difficulty that we have to overcome mm -hmm. because people with ADHD are incredibly creative. And how would then med medicine uh, uh, help in that aspect, or like? <clears throat> Maybe it's, it's not doing the transition or, you know. Okay, so in our society, again, part of the difficulty is that to be able to give yourself as many choices as possible, generally you have to pass exams. Mm -hmm, Passing exams is a lot more important nowadays, apparently, than yep. in the old days. Uh, and in our educational system, it's kind of difficult to be able to achieve this unless you you get some help uh, 
you can get behavioral or psychological help, people to teach you how to deal with your ADHD symptoms, uh, how to break down the study patterns, how to intersperse physical exercise in between, and lots of other things rather than just only medication. Right. And even in the medication field, there are simple medications, for example, the, the omega-3 fish oils, phosphatidylserine, mm -hmm. and all the rest that just help you to uh, be less impulsive and more focused. Yeah, I think people also uh, have this um, connotation of medicine. Is, but I mean, like, think of it, a, a pill or a nutrient pill, mm. like when you mentioned omega-3, it's not, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily be classified under medication but actually it kind of is like it is medicinal food maybe <laughs> yeah uh, under supplements or, yes. or and there are supplements that will help you mm -hmm. it's the same way that some of the simplest solutions are the most effective and yet people don't do them for example with depression uh, one of the biggest issues is isolating yourself and not having any physical exercise or not actually getting yourself moving physically because if you move yourself then you start produce your brain starts to produce all this wonderful stuff endokinins endo endorphins serotonin and all the the other neuropeptides uh, but when you're depressed you don't want to do it and so sometimes you have to force yourself this is treatment i want you to take it three times a week <laughs> one helping each helping must be at least 30 minutes mm. And it's really difficult, but I found people who who benefited so much. For example, there's this guy who couldn't get out of his couch for years sometimes at a time and was so depressed. And all the antidepressant medicines were not seeming to work that well. Mm -hmm. and yet, when we managed to put into place a simple thing like, I want your family or your children to take you out for a 20-minute walk every day. And literally, it was like dragging you out for the first first week or two. Yeah. But after a month of doing this, the whole attitude and whole lifestyle and, and mood started to change. Mm. So a lot of the, the behavioral changes that are needed are simple stuff. And that's just one example. In School of Positive Psychology in Philadelphia or University of Pennsylvania, they have a, a whole series of things where they talk about things that you can do to push up your mood by maybe 5%. Mm. And that's all you need because it can be cumulative, 3% here, 5% there. Yeah. After a while, you're actually doing pretty well. No, and I also believe that um, um, positivity is sort of like a muscle that you, that you learn. Uh, and, and how I interpret it is sort of like, there's a way of seeing um, what has happened and it's the story that you're telling yourself what has happened to you. And if you were to train those, create those new narrative for yourself mm -hmm. and make yourself positive, um, I mean, it's a positive narrative. And then when you come back to the same situation, you would not have then this old negative thoughts or like that, that might be one of, the, that's, at least that's how I see it. So that's the basis of a lot of cognitive behavioral or dialectical behavioral therapy where you change the, the, the narrative that you have about things. For example, a person who is feeling down or depressed may come in and say good morning to the boss and the boss doesn't say good morning mm. back. The automatic thought, or automatic thought that may pass through the mind is, oh no, my boss does not like me. 
But and, yeah, there, there's other yeah. ways to interpret it. Of course. And so it's training the person to say, look at the other alternatives. And boss may be very busy in the morning and rushing to get a project done. Uh, or if you really uh, are worried about it and it's been going on for a while, just go up to the person and ask the boss, is there anything that I can, uh, I've done that is wrong? Yeah. Or And most of the time you'll be surprised because no, most of the, the damage or the problem is in your own head. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I will even um, say that um, just to look, look at it from a different point of view is that um, it is more effective as in if that thought clouds you in your head and you become ineffective in the after, like, you know, after 2 p.m. or what if that happens at 10 a.m. and your entire day is just gone. And that's just uh, a bad. So actually, in fact, if you were to just change the narrative and you could actually get on the day and then if you want to check in, like what you say, you could, you could just check in uh, with the boss if you want to. Um, just to touch on a little bit more about depression and those low-hanging fruits they mentioned that mm. one could do. Uh, simple one that we always use or often use is get people to keep a gratitude diary. Mm. Uh, a gratitude diary is where once a week you just keep a notebook or uh, write in. Spend maybe 15 minutes just sitting down and thinking over the past week and thinking of three things that you're grateful for and then just documenting it. Now, it's such a simple thing, but by doing it, and it could be simple things like, wow, I found the best uh, Indian Rojak stall in Singapore, <laughs> or I found the best place to, to, to hang out and relax on a weekend. Or I met a, a classmate from primary school, and we were able to catch up, and it made me feel so joyful uh, because it brought back so many pleasant memories. And what's, what's the science behind a, a gratitude? Okay, so, you see, the automatic ways that a lot of people think, and we are conditioned into this, yeah. is that uh, we focus on the negatives. Oh, uh, life is difficult. Life is tough. I'm going to uh, crash and burn. Oh, I'm not doing well at my job. Oh, he's earning more than I am, or she's earning better than me, and I'm not going to get promoted. He is... Okay, so we always focus on all the negatives. But when you're doing this and as a process, you're writing it down, the minimum of three, three things, um, you're actually changing the narrative. And if you keep doing that week after week for maybe six weeks, apparently your mood improves by anything between 5 and 10%. Yeah, but you're right that, you know, you always remember the negative things. Of course. Right? And, you know, like, uh, I, have, I have friends who are also business owners and they're like, Hey, do you know that like the like it's only maybe like one percent of all I mean this all business survive, right? And you should be thank, thanking God that like your business survive. So um um then but then at the same time I have deleted that information <laughs> <laughs> from my memory banks. I don't want to remember that. But I mean just also to to to, to take gratitude of you know the business um um working out and um just because I think entrepreneurs tend to have this like, what's next? What's more? How can we get more money? Uh, grow bigger, bigger team. And uh, not always, you know. You discover that you can be an entrepreneur and you can go by your own. You can march to your own drummer mm. and decide what it is that you want to do. Because money per se is not going to be the be all and end all. I've never had I, and. In my four years of wandering through general medical practices, one of them was oncology. Never seen anybody who's going to die 
who says that, oh, I wish I had spent more time on my business or I spent more time doing, uh, uh, spent more time in the office. Yeah. It's always about, I wish I'd spent more time with family or with relationships and stuff. And so deciding things like that is, uh, it, it, it puts things in perspective. And if you want to do a business also, uh, chase after a dream or chase after things, something that you want to do. Mm. Uh, it probably lead you to be a lot happier in the end. Yeah, and since you're on the topic of you know, chasing dreams, at one point in your career, you also went to St. Vincent uh, Hospital at Melbourne, right? Yes. Um, maybe you want to unpack that a little bit and tell mm. us how you, how do you end up there and what were you searching mm. for? Uh, actually, I was sent to St. Vincent's Hospital by the Singapore government. They said that we needed more people who understood substance abuse and addictions. And so I got sent there for a posting. It was remarkable because the the whole philosophy of work and life was really different. And one of the other things that happened when I moved over to Australia was, and this is where I begin to understand, um, when you have time on your hands, you can actually be creative. You can actually think about solutions to things that you don't have if you are just having to be productive and work, 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 work. If you think about it, uh, a lot of the really big entrepreneurs, uh, Apple and Google and all the rest, they were probably sitting around, goofing around and throwing ideas around uh, until they came up with, oh, this sounds like a good idea, let's go for it. The thing that changed, actually working in Australia changed me so much because before that, the perception was okay, um, People with addictions, they're doing bad things, so they must be bad people. And the more we worked in in an Australian setting where there's a really big um, narrative about uh, helping people, uh, it became such that a person with an addiction is a person who is struggling and uh, maybe the easiest way is to quote um, Scott Peck. Scott Peck used to say that people with addictions are people who are seeking for more in life than they're actually experiencing, but going to the wrong address. Okay? And we find that each person tries to find their satisfaction or their meaning in life by doing things or achieving stuff. And sometimes it's not over. If you look at our situation, there's so many people who come to me really miserable and angry because... I've gone through and I've done this, 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 and I've achieved this, 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 and now I'm a CEO. But this was all that my mother wanted me to do. I actually wanted to be a dancer. <laughs> or something to that effect. And, and were, were there any sort of experiences or encode that lesson for you in terms of looking at addiction in a different uh, light? I think it was the openness of the society. I'll give you an example. Mm. In Singapore, I'd ask somebody, so why are you coming to see me? He says, I, I don't know. I say, what do you mean you don't know why you're coming to see me? Uh, why are you here then? Oh, my wife asked me to come. Okay, why did your wife ask me to co- you to come to see me? I don't know. You have to ask my wife. <laughs> and then I do a urine test. According to this urine test, you're positive for marijuana. Huh? How did it get there? Hello. <laughs> what am I dealing with? If you, the, the, the first principle of recovery or, or change or being able to change anything is being honest about what exactly is going on. 
And it was so different when I went to Australia because, you know, literally I had a person come in and tell me, hey, uh, doc, I'm coming to see you because I'm getting pretty paranoid and suspicious and I think that it's interfering with my ability to work. And uh, so I'm coming to see whether I should take some medication or maybe I should just cut down on the amount of marijuana I'm taking. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like suddenly a oh, totally different lifestyle. The more open, the more honest you can be about what's going on in your life. The faster the, the, faster the person gets back to an even keel of functioning wow. uh, or, or actually uh, managing to meet whatever goals they have for themselves. Mm. And the more that they are, they are tightly knit and, and, you know, it's, it's amazing how many families and how many people I see with really huge big elephants in the room or issues and, and they don't talk it. about it. Oh. They skirt around it. They don't talk about it. Uh, they don't say anything because they're so afraid. That if I say what is really on my mind or say what is really happening and I'm feeling miserable and this is a hopeless situation that I was in or one of my family members became crazy for a while and uh, did some stupid stuff, that people will judge you and that people will then think that you are crazy or by association or uh, we have family secrets. We must not share or tell anybody about our family secrets. And so they become really tightly wound, tightly wound. Uh, but you're saying that that actually is the interfering them. For getting it, is, it, it, it is detrimental because you're spending all your energy and all your time trying to think about how to hide things or not really uh, process or talk through what is going on in your heart or in your mind. Um, I'll give you an example if you have told a lie or told a narrative, it becomes a kind of difficult because it can snowball and become bigger and bigger. Then you've got to remember each time you tell it uh, and you must be consistent also. Like, if you tell a lie, you better be consistent that it's the same lie to everybody. If not, oh no, i got to remember which lie I told him, which lie I told him. Like I, I couldn't come to work. The actual reason may have been because I was stone drunk and I couldn't wake up. But I told him that I couldn't come to work because I was having gastroenteritis and I was vomiting. And then you told the boss that, oh, I had a migraine. It becomes very difficult because after a while, you've got to remember which lie you told to which person. You're using up all this brain energy. Mm. Instead of saying, oh, I, I really screwed up. I, I, I really want to do something about this because I... I and why do you think the Australians are, um, um, let's just are more open in that sense? Like, I mean, a while, a while stab. A while stab would be that they're more accepting of differences in people. Mm. They're more accepting that human beings are not perfect, and you don't have to be perfect or pretend to be perfect to be accept, accepted. Uh, a lot of the philosophy also is that we are in this world because uh, we well, we're going to serve a purpose. But most of all, I think they see it as I'm going to come here to enjoy myself <laughs> in the world. Yeah. And to enjoy myself, I would just do things that I think that I want to do. Mm. It leaves them a lot of uh, leeway to, to play around with stuff. And sometimes, of course, they bend the truth. And, uh, it's not only Asians who bend the truth. 
They do. I, I remember, but they do it fluently. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I remember teaching a medical class okay. in, uh, uh, in St. Vincent's, or, yeah. oh, sorry, University of Melbourne. And this fifth year medical student started expounding this theory when I asked a question about uh, all about addictions. And I was sitting there for five whole minutes or ten minutes listening and trying to figure out how come I had not heard of this theory until it dawned on me that he was making this all up from first principles. <laughs> and, you know, it's often like that. And that's right. the ability to think outside the box mm-hmm. and to to think on the fly. But he didn't tell you he was like... No, he didn't. Of course he didn't tell me. He didn't <laughs> want to tell me that he was hadn't read the book and so this was his theory. <laughs> Right, but it sounds pretty convincing. But the point is that he was using first principles and basic principles of human behavior and making up a theory on the fly. That's pretty good. Yes, and and so that's where you use a whole different set of brain muscles. It's not just memorization or following uh, things that have been done in the past, but it is uh, the ability to accept and embrace change. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's good mental uh, exercise. And and I think we, we talk a little bit about like you know like what is better uh, done with that. Is there anything else that you know like we are? I mean, we in Singapore, you see, is better in, in, than okay. If, if you talk about the addiction world, mm. we are better because we have a clear cut philosophy, and we are able to throw resources at it. For example, it's a zero tolerance policy on drugs. Mm-hmm. And we throw a lot of resources now into trying to help people. In, in, I think that there's about uh, uh, 80 or 100 hours of actual individual counseling time and stuff that is given if you get admitted to prison for a drug offense. And this is hugely different from 10 years ago when you would have uh, somebody talking to a huge lecture and just saying, don't take drugs. If you take drugs, you will come back to prison. <laughs> And now they're trying to unpack it and try to help people on an individual basis. Mm. But it could be even better than that. And I find it difficult because I think we have here hamstrung ourselves by having the philosophy first and not looking at what is evidence-based in terms of what works in helping people to stop. Now, I am all Don't for. Give an example. Yeah. I am all for total absence. And <clears throat> example would be, we have people who spend literally, literally their whole lives in prison. Every time they come out, they go back into prison. And I see them in prison, and I think, so, so tell me, you've been here for the last five years. What are you? Wh- how are you going to stay uh, clean and sober when you go out? Oh, I'm going to work. Huh? Didn't you work in the past times when you came out? Yes, yes, but this time it's going to be different. Why is it going to be different? Or how is it going to be different? It's going to be different. Uh, why do you think it's going to be different? I've been here five years. I haven't had any cravings to use drugs. I say, ah. When you're in a, a, a structured environment where people tell you what time to wake up, what time to eat, what time to go to the toilet, what time to bathe, there's no stress. You go out in a normal life, there will be stress. And if you don't, prepare for it, you're going to mess up. The automatic thing that relieves your stress is going to come back and tell you, take me. Mm. And they, didn't, they don't see it like that? 
a lot of people who uh, go into prison for drug addiction, for example, yeah. tend to be kind of marginalized minorities or people who are not really functioning at a high uh, intellectual level, mm. for one. And sometimes they are, okay, but sometimes more often than not, they're not. <laughs> and so to be able to overcome their addiction requires that we, we, we should learn perhaps from the best programs in the world. Mm. Best programs in the world that achieve, for example, 98% uh, abstinence at two years are doctors and airline pilots in residence. If you have a drug problem or alcohol problem for your airline pilot, it's very important to everybody that you don't use and fly. Right, right, yeah, of course. <laughs> I would think so. And so, it, they are absolutes. We tell you, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, and uh, you can. The, the the governing board can say, you have to see a therapist and psychiatrist uh, once a fortnight for the first two months, and then after that, follow whatever program he puts together for you. You must attend uh, 12-step recovery meetings, a minimum of twice a week. You must go for... Uh, this program or that program. If you follow all these things, then we will consider giving you back your license. If you don't follow any of them, then thank you very much, no license to fly or to practice medicine or to whatever else. Mm. The similar principle is followed in drug courts. Here, for some strange reason, we seem to think that people learn best if you cane them uh, or if you punish them first. And this is where we could learn from uh, principles of what actually works in helping people change their minds. There's absolutely or hardly any evidence that caning somebody actually helps them to not use drugs in future. I think, yeah, yeah you're right. So it's a punishment. Yeah. It's an adverse event. And if anything, if you look at adverse events, they will tell you that uh, adverse or negative conditioning doesn't work in addiction recovery. I think I think just to extrapolate that and take it to to, to young kids, right? Because uh, we talk about you know the, the the punishment and you know Asian parents love to to cane. I got cane, uh, so that's my friends. Uh, we talk about it, mm -hmm. but I think when it comes, what you are trying to say is that when it comes to the real world, when there's no cane, like what you're gonna do about it, right? Mm -hmm. It's those people who can survive the real world without the caning. Um, okay, but in I, for think, the long I think I think is the same thing, or is it? I I think that the. Uh, the caning mainly helps administrators to figure out that, oh, we've done something to, to try and reduce it. Okay. It doesn't really reduce it in the person, but it does make you feel like you've reduced it. The things that actually work are trying to get the person, instead of being a nanny to them and telling them, I want you to do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. Mm -hmm. It is to, to give them responsibility. Your job is to stay clean. For example, the prisons in California were overcrowded. And they could either continue building bigger and bigger prisons or they could change some of the philosophy and send people out into programs that uh, got them to uh, take responsibility for themselves. And so they had drug courts, emptied the prisons, offered treatment instead of uh, incarceration. And so a judge can now... It's something like our community courts in Singapore. We have community courts where if a person shoplifts and is an atypical theft offender, you're shoplifting not because out of greed or, or need, mm -hmm. but you're shoplifting because you are uh, emotionally disturbed and you, uh, or you have kleptomania or you have some other condition going on at that time and you're in a fog. Then 
the court can sentence you to treatment, a mm. mandatory treatment order or probation order. With, instead of instead incarceration. Of, instead of incarceration. They should do that with drug addicts as well. And, because and the argument is that it's better. Um, it gives the person a chance to develop their own self-efficacy. Right now, everything is organized where you must turn up at this time, you must follow this program, uh, and everything is front-loaded. Mm. So you go to prison, and because prison is good for you, you have to learn, and not only you have to learn, but we have to scare everybody else so that they also don't do the same thing. Yeah. Um, but it is so much better if you say that, okay, this is the sentence, for example, okay, you took heroin again. The sentence this time is supposed to be five years. So we are willing to give you maybe a front loading of a couple of weeks or a month just to remind you that this is where you're going to end up if you do it. During that period, you will have an assessment by a team multidisciplinary team of psychiatrists, psychologists, or whatever else, mm -hmm. and they will decide what treatment program is needed. Which is a drug court. Sort of a drug court yeah. thing. Like. It can be done by a prisons or correction service as well. Okay. And this drug court then decides and tells you, here are the things that you have to do. You have to attend 12-step meeting three times uh, a week. You have to uh, go for a rehab program. You have to do this. You have to see a therapist. And by the way, you also have to go and learn a, a skill so that you can feed yourself. So go to VITB or vocational training uh, and uh, show proof that at the end of one year, you are actually able to sustain a job. Yeah. Now, take all these things. And if you are able to maintain them for the next uh uh, next few years, at the end of five years, we will consider your sentence served. Mm. And then the person is so motivated to want because to make sure the that they don't... Is the reward is don't in. go into jail. Yes. And so therefore, they have to follow. But right now, the way that we process it, yep. uh, to me, it, it doesn't follow natural uh, recovery patterns because the, the thing is, we, we put you in prison, we cane you, and we make you stay there for five years, and then you come out and you see everybody is, I just want to get on with my life. I just want to get back to my life. I need to go to work. I've lost so much money. I need to support my family. I need to do this. I need to do that. And they don't concentrate or they don't even think that I need to pay first attention and most attention to the fact that I have an addiction or that I'm addicted to heroin. And if it's called an addiction because if I don't pay attention to it, I will go back and do it. Mm. No, I think that that is just great. Um, and I was wondering if that same principle could be applied to maybe um, behavior training for kids. Um, I think we do it, right? Yeah. How, how would that look like if, if, if I want to like, you know, make my, um, not like I have a kid, but if I want to make someone's kids studies harder? Okay. So what people try to do is uh, a combination of big stick and rewards, lah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, the carrot and the stick, right? Yes. And so, very often, despite the fact that people think in the old days it was the cane or you follow and if you don't do this, I will cane you. Uh, there's big problems in our Asian families because people don't talk. And I've seen a number of suicides that have happened because the family just, you know, wow, they're doing so well, they perform perfectly well in school and everything else, but there were issues that they don't talk about. Mm. And they can't talk about it because you can't show weakness, you can't show that you have a problem. Mm. So 
ideally speaking, the, the, the new Singaporean or the new uh, young adult or parent engages, spends time doing uh, interesting things, going for walks at East Coast uh, Beach or other things with their family, going cycling, doing activities. And after a while, they get to know what is going to enliven or engage their son or daughter. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then, tailor make your plan of how to encourage them by saying that, okay, if you, you're now functioning and you've got 55% in your exams, if you manage to get 60%, then we will, in your next exam, then we will do this or that, or then we will go for a holiday to Penang, or, or then mm. we so will... So depends, we'll the reward got to be right. Yeah. The reward got to be right. There's, uh, it's, there's a whole process, even in addictions, and I always go back to addictions, where they discovered that you know, you tell people the right thing to do, you need to be clean, you need to follow uh, through with your program and all these things, and nothing happens. But then they make it a game, and they say, okay, we are going to have this where we, we test your urine a uh, minimum of three times a week, and if you manage to produce six clean urines in two weeks, then you will get this voucher for one McDonald's uh, hamburger. Oh. And guess what? What's wonders? Everybody is competing to be clean because they want the hamburger. And it's such a simple thing. We, we spend so much money trying to treat you and drill into you. You do the right thing and all that. But instead, they give you a, re- a simple reward and people fight for that reward even if it is meaningless reward. Sometimes it is uh, it is simple vouchers or uh, something. I mean, McDonald's burger, man, it, it's yeah. very exciting. Kentucky Fried Chicken or I know. a G- GV voucher to watch a, a film with a friend. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and you know, it's simple things. And you think about the cost of actually providing mm. treatment or therapy. Mm. It's huge. And, and you, just... I guess sort of going back a little bit to you know after St. Vincent, um, you you sort of spearhead the, the addiction department over at IMH. What were the the context of starting it, and and then like what 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 were the therapy before, and why did you decide to, to to start that? I think it was by accident because they had decided to move the alcohol unit to Alexandra Hospital, mm-hmm. and I saw I was still in IMH or Institute of Mental Health in. Uh, I was kind of lost because he needed something to do. <laughs> and we had all these skills. But you can't move to Alexandra together. Uh, and so what happened was that I asked, I put together a program and I said to Ministry of Health that we should run a community addictions management program and we call it CAMP. And it would treat all addictions, not just, I knew that if I said I wanted to treat drug addicts, that's it. Lah. Nobody's going to fund you. So I said, we want to treat all, everybody has an addiction, whether it is gambling, sex, uh, internet, or, or alcohol, or cigarette smoking. And, yeah. and so we treated the legal addictions and the illegal addictions. And amazingly, I was, I think, one of the most shocked that uh, Ministry of Health actually agreed <laughs> to fund a program and uh, I think this was Dr. Tan Cho Chuan's time uh, when he was DMS. He was pretty far-sighted in a lot of impacts that things would have. Mm-hmm. And we started a community program. 
uh, it was amazing because we could learn from first principles. And that's the same thing that I was telling you. Mm. What we did was first is go research, go and find out as much as we can about the addictions, employ people who, uh, when we employed them, we made sure that they did not see addicts as bad people, but as people with uh, needs and problems who had gone to wrong address mm. to get their needs met. Uh, put together group and individual programs to try and help them to change. Mm. And we found that every year our numbers doubled. We started with 300 new cases first year. And after four or five years, we were seeing 2,000 plus new cases. Is that a good thing? It shows you that there was a latent demand. Before, for example, the first time I started a a gambling program, you know, they said, Singapore, we don't have gamblers. All right. We start a gambling program. The first year, 100 people or more turn up to, to get treatment. You know, we probably have a gambling problem in Singapore. Same with sexual addictions or sexual compulsivities. I still remember the first time that we, we at that time it was new paper, we, we ran an article and had a, a foreign uh, person come and share with us the experience in recovery from sexual addictions. And uh, it was amazing because they gave a hotline and at that time it was this big brick handphones that we used to carry. Um, I, I still remember I was sitting with the person who was handling the hotline handphone. And after this person shared with the newspaper, uh, we got so many phone calls. I think the whole afternoon there must have been 70 or 80 phone calls. Just one day, wow. And no, just that afternoon. Wow. And it was quite amazing because everybody was calling and say, you know that article, huh? Mm, I have a friend who's just like that. <laughs> and that's the part about Singapore because right. we, we kind of don't say that we have a problem, but you know, we've got a friend who we know or somebody that we know, yeah. or a family member that we know who's got that same problem. What would we do? <laughs> ah, <laughs> well, why don't you bring them down and you know, we can so, talk about it. So we discovered that we have a pretty large number of people who are also sexually compulsive. Mm. And it goes back to the same principle. And, you know, my understanding and reading of the neuroscience and neurochemistry is that whether you're addicted to gambling or whether you're addicted to heroin, the same part in your brain lights up. Mm -hmm. The same uh, reward processes take place. And learning how to overcome that is a combination of things. Sometimes medications, sometimes behavioral therapy or, or programming and also enough uh, work to help you figure out why you did it and what are the things that you can do to overcome it. Yeah, I want to dive in a little bit about the, the process and how you know it is sort of similar from smoking to gambling to um, sex. Um, but before even that, uh, uh, we just want to touch on if I really do have a friend uh, that is addicted, <laughs> how, would I, how would I know? Firstly, how would I know uh, he or she is addicted? Uh, or maybe it's more a self-assessment as okay, well. Okay, so... A person will know that they're addicted if, you know, it's amazing how many people come to tell me, you know, Doc, I drink a lot and sometimes I have problems, but you know, I'm not addicted to alcohol. I can stop anytime I want to. So I tell them, okay, if you can stop anytime you want to, now will be a good time. You stop and then come back in two weeks and tell me how it is for you. And you know what happens, obviously. They might be able to manage a day or two, but wow, after that, wow. It's a lot more difficult than I thought. It's the same as asking somebody, oh, you can stop cigarette smoking anytime. Stop lah. 
Right. And then we'll see if you have problems and you can't stop it on your own, then come and see us and we maybe you can talk about how to put you through a therapeutic program or right. uh, give you some form of uh, alternate help or some medicines to help you together with <clears throat> a program. And, <laughs> I, I, I like the approach. Uh, I mean, is there something softer or, or just being upfront and... What do you mean softer? And so if it's like a, a close family, you know, that maybe have an addiction problem that they don't know of to, to sort of let them be aware of it. <laughs> no, um, okay. My, my basic philosophy is that if you want to know whether you have a problem, see whether you can do without that behavior. Yeah. And, uh, see whether you, what happens if you try to stop it. Mm. I think that in the current day and age, a lot of people will have withdrawal symptoms if you tell them, sorry, there's no more Facebook for the next two weeks. Or no more iPhones. Or no more iPhones. Or no more phone. You cannot use smartphone for the next week. Yeah. <gasps> I think they will really... You know, a heroin addict, first thing he does when he wakes up in the morning is think about, do I have enough money? Where am I going to get my heroin? Do I have enough heroin to smoke today? All that. And so the first thing he does when he wakes up is does that. So what does a person with a smartphone nowadays do? You wake up first thing in the morning, you turn over and reach out and pick up your handphone and look at all the messages. Or That's look so at... amazing. So... No, actually, what had just happened <laughs> for me in this week was that I tried to not use it. Oh, right. And, and, and it, was, it was kind of hard, really. Mm. Um, but because uh, I was just reading this, this guy called Jim Quick and his uh, memory expert, and he was saying that, hey, actually using um, smartphone um, is not really helping you in, in your brain stimulation. And when you just wake up in this alpha beta state which i have no idea what it's about that you know you, you actually really relax and you know if you get something that's useful in your brain you can absorb it more so i was like okay well, let me try reading a book this one day and it feels great right and the next and the next day i was like okay well this is great you know let, let's do it again yeah. and i was like okay i need i really need to actively not use the phone and and i think morning is it's just such a time where you have that power um to to not use it i mean if i were to do this something like that i'll try to stop myself from doing something like that at night that'll be almost really hard to do yes so this is an example for you that uh, addictions are very subtle and nobody that i've seen has become an alcoholic or a drug addict because they they say you know I came into life, I decided when I started drinking when I was 16 years old or 17 years old, I decided to start drinking in life because my ambition was to become an alcoholic. It's rubbish. But, you know, they drink and then they find that it serves a purpose to you. And this is where whatever the addiction is, it serves some reward or some purpose to the person. It fills some unknown or known need. For example, alcohol may be that you know, I'm very inhibited. I can't talk to girls. But after I've had two drinks, wow, I'm the life of the party. I can talk to them. I'm so charming. <laughs> they all look prettier too. <laughs> that works. Um, I, let's, let's dive a little bit and into the next part, which is now that they have addiction, what are the common sort of uh, key, keystone uh, uh, process of recovering? So first step is being aware of it. The first step in all recovery, usually there's, there's something that people call the how of recovery. So how is honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness, H-O-W. Mm -hmm. And so the first step is to become honest about what is going on. Is it really causing me a problem? 
you know, and a lot of people have blinkers on. They say, oh yeah, I drink, but I only drink in the evening. Oh, I drink, but I only drink beer. I don't drink the hard stuff. <laughs> and coming to our understanding that, oh yeah, I drink, but you know, it's made me not be able to go to work a couple of times. It has caused my relationship with my spouse to be really messed up. Uh, it made me miss out on taking my kids to the beach mm. because I was too stoned and too tired the next day. And so it's coming to be honest about what is going on. And it doesn't matter whether it's an illegal addiction or a legal addiction. They all have impacts on you. And becoming really honest about it and open-minded because you need to explore what are the options for me. Uh, do I see a doctor? Do I see a psychologist? Do I go into a program? Uh, is there a self-help group I can go to? Uh, and then deciding which ones to take. And then the willingness to actually do it. Because without a willingness to, to, to actually take action, nothing's going to change. Addictions are pretty strong. I see addictions as the psychological equivalent of cancer. Cancer destroys the physical body. And addiction destroys your mental ability to, to live a normal or good life. So after that first sort of like being open and willing to do it, um, what's next? Take action. Go and find out as much as you can about the thing. Look up who are the best people to help with that, whether it is a social program, whether it's an online program, whether it is uh, sitting and talking to a priest or a therapist or a monk, learning to do a meditation so that you can switch off your mind from the hustle-bustle, instead of having to use drugs to do it. Mm -hmm. So there's many, many options, but explore all those options by reading up. Maybe read up about online or uh, in actual books about how people have overcome the same kinds of issues. Mm. What are the options to do it? Read up, ask questions, ask people. Um, sometimes a bit difficult because the, the breadth of knowledge of how to recover is kind of limited. Yeah. Because for so long, for addictions have been a taboo subject in this part of the world that, no, first of all, nobody wants to admit that they have an addiction. Second of all, if you have an addiction, it's bad. And so therefore, we can't talk about it. Mm. Mm. But the more people talk about what's bad and has happened and how they've overcome it, the better they will be. No, you're right. Um, and what are the most common pitfalls of people who have sort of um, sort of they thought that they have recovered and have a relapse and mm. how do they you know like sort of um, uh, see that and try to avoid that like, is there mm. any thing in general that you can share I think the biggest pitfall is thinking that I'm perfectly okay I'm perfectly normal and so now I don't have to pay attention to this issue anymore and I think the biggest ones we've seen in the newspapers have been perhaps dealing with gamblers gamblers they they confess, they say they're sorry to family, they uh, go to church or go to a temple, they pray, and uh, they, have, uh, they decide that they're going to live a different life. And they manage to do it in the early stages, of course, when you're concentrating on doing it, it's a lot easier. And after they've done it for a period of time, a year or two, they suddenly decide that they're perfectly cured and they, didn't ne they never really had a problem in the first place. Mm, mm. And then they think, oh, well, maybe I'll just go back to just try uh, playing uh, 
on the soccer batting again just once or twice. And within a short period of time, that automatic reward cycle in your brain brings you back to going further and further down the line. Mm. And you're caught. And that's why a lot of people go into regular support group meetings once a week, once a month, or whatever it is, as a reminder that, okay, there but for the grace of God go I. Or that's where I will head if I do not pay attention to the fact that I have an addiction. Are, are there any um, support group uh, website or, or, or that? I think most of the support groups are available in Singapore. We have Narcotics Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous, Gamblers Anonymous, Sexaholics Anonymous, Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous. Mm-hmm. Lots of support so groups. So if you would just Google, you would just pop right out. As I tell my clients, just go and ask Dr. Google where you find them. <laughs> or if you want me to print out for you, I'll print it out for you Yeah, where to go. Um. Uh, no, I'll, I'll, I'll try to link uh, all that in the in the in the show notes in the blog post. Um, so one of the the thing that I'm fascinated about in going in this journey of um, I'm looking at addictions in Singapore, uh, in the context of Singapore, is that um, dr- drug addiction is illegal. Uh, I mean, drug is illegal here. And one thing that's different from Singapore and the US is that the doctors are. I need to double check that with you. So feel free to correct me if I'm wrong are mandated to report um, their patients uh, to the authority. Um, so then it seems like for a patient, it's a no-win situation if they want to seek treatment. And that's, that's actually a big handicap for people coming to seek help. Yeah. They, they want to seek help, but they don't want to seek help because the idea of uh, seeking help is that government knows and government has got one-size-fits-all approach yes. to, to drugs. So after a while, nobody wants to tell anybody the truth about what's happening. Either that or you're very much... Uh, the people who are actually hardcore addicts have a uh, better idea because they know exactly what to trust and what not to trust in uh, public <laughs> service. This is the the people who are generally well and uh, functional and behaving well in society who slip into addictive behaviors of one sort or another who just don't realize how severe the penalties are yeah. for a substance dis- uh, misdemeanor and 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 if there are people like that um obviously you know they can't come go to a psychiatrist um you can what... go and see a psychologist you you see a team or a psychologist or thing and, and you know it's actually no big deal reporting i know people will never feel that but uh, when i was in imh we we used to report regularly uh, in the institute of mental health and uh out of every hundred people who we reported, I used to keep in uh, tabs on whether or not they got visited by CNB. Hmm. And maybe three out of a hundred got visited. And I suspect it was because CNB probably had a lot of other information on them at the same time. Oh. It's hardly ever because we reported that they got a visit. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and because I, I, my impression is that CNB actually wants people to get help and get well, so that they don't have to. But we hope, we all hope so. We hope so. <laughs> yes. Um, no. So I mean, I'm saying it more for the for for the uh, for the people who are addicts and you know found that you know they are addicts and they are just like, well, you know, what should I do? I, I can't turn well, to seek, a seek help. Go and seek a counselor first. 
There's counseling agencies, we care community services. But counselors are also mandated to. No, the only people who are mandated to report are people registered under the Medical Act. Okay. There we go. So at least now. Uh, you can uh, see a psychologist, you can see a counselor, you can see a therapist, mm. you can see anybody as long as you're not seeing them as a doctor. Mm. Um, cool. And I think uh, that sort of uh, 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 wraps, it up. wraps it up a little bit. I mean, I, I mean, maybe we want to talk a little bit about the, the clinic. That's one of those uh, things that was the question that I had before. Was like, why did you decide to. Why set up a clinic? Yeah. And then, you know, I mean, obviously, I, I assume mm. that you are having a pretty good gig over. At oh yeah, I, I was actually enjoying life in the Institute of Mental Health, and I really enjoyed setting up services. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, when I looked at all my seniors and those retiring, I thought that uh, in my family, nobody has ever left the civil service, as far as I know. And I wanted to try something different. Advantages of ADHD, uh, but very conservative ADHD, as far as I can tell. And so I wanted to come out and try uh, what private uh, service was like. Plus, I like the fact that I could do whatever I wanted and figure out, figure out whatever I wanted. So we set up a service, a Promises Healthcare, where we, we still work. We're not a typical psychiatric practice because um, we work with a whole multidisciplinary team, psychologists, social workers, uh, psychotherapists, art therapists, drama therapists, and working with a team is actually very costly, but we find that using different modalities and group therapy and individual therapy often helps people to to make those leaps into changing lifestyle and behavior much better than just one-on-one uh, uh, therapy or medication. And that's what you have can do at IMH? Mm, no. That's, it, it gives me the freedom to engage with multiple disciplines, okay. engage with multiple agencies mm-hmm. uh, in a lot less regimented way than IMH. Basically faster. Faster. Okay. <laughs> well, let's dive into a quick round of questions. Um, are there any books or book that you have given notes as a gift? Well, in my clinic, the, the the most frequent book given out is the big book. It's the Alcoholics Anonymous big book, written by a whole bunch of people, Bill Wilson and uh, Bob Smith, uh, in the 19, late 1930s. And uh, since then, it has been a bestseller. But it is basically both a process for 12-step work or Alcoholics Anonymous, plus a lot of stories. And people basically can use that as their own guide or or reading about for example this chapter five is how it works and so they when they read this they can work out for themselves what they need to do the big book a uh, big book yes alcoholics big book the, oh. the bible of the alcoholics Wait, so is, the title is the big book it is okay <laughs> i'll come back to you if i can find it um are there any uh favorite uh, movies or documentaries uh I just like action movies, basically. Again, ADHD, but... Iron Man. Iron Man for me. Iron Man and all the rest of it. It's fun, it's mindless, and you know they're going to win in the end. (laughs) Uh, Sometimes a little bit more poignant stuff. Uh, I like flight. 
Dan- Denzel Washington. Oh, that's the one that uh, yeah. where he was an addict. Yeah. Yes, yeah. and that was really good. Yes, it was. It first of all, it was. It tells you that my there are a lot of very high functioning addicts around in the world, mm. just that they don't get caught most of the time, and they manage to function. But at some level, they need help too. What have you purchased recently under a hundred dollars that have most impacted you in your life? I'm sorry, I can't answer that. The the, the most impacted me would be food under a hundred dollars. No problem. <laughs> uh, what's the worst advice you see or hear being dispensed in your circle? Uh, just stop it. You know, a lot of people says, "I don't know what's wrong with my son," or "I don't know what's wrong with him." I've told him to stop using drugs, and he can't. If if a person with an addiction could stop it, they would have stopped it. And it's the worst advice. It's the same as Nancy Reagan used to run a campaign in the U.S. Uh, just stop it. Uh, and again, it's crazy. If you could stop, you would. Um, if you can send a message back in time um, to your 20 and 30-year-old self mm. and tell him or her to tell him to cultivate a skill or a habit, mm. um, what would that be? I think it would be, don't be afraid of change. Uh, embrace change and be willing to just take it as it is, as it comes. Uh, we are sometimes way too conservative. If I had taken a leap and done a lot of the things that I know now a lot earlier, uh, it would have saved a lot of heartaches. Mm. And, and is there any practice or things you would tell him to, for him to kick in a butt to take the, mm. the, the leap of faith? No, yeah, yeah, would have gone out into private practice a lot earlier. <laughs> or decided to change things a lot earlier or attempted to ask for a grant to, from the government to do new programs a lot earlier. And, uh, you know, I've also discovered along the way that uh, not making a decision or not doing something is also a decision. Indecision. Yes, indecision is also a big decision. Yeah, I think and this is something that I realize too, and I and I tell people all the time, is that patience is not a virtue. Mm-hmm. Perseverance is. Yeah. But run uh, because the time is slipping like sand away from your hands. That's right. Yeah, and uh, when you think of the word successful, who came to your mind and why? I. I well, if I think successful, I think of my own clients or patients who have really turned their lives around. And that's one of the reasons why I'm, why I'm in addictions, because almost every week or month, I see at least a few people who have managed to turn things totally around, where there's a total mess, no relationship, no good family life, no mm. ability to enjoy life or things. But you make good decisions you follow through on values, a value-based uh, program for recovery. And uh, I think there are too many to, for me to, to count at the moment. But that's one of the things that keeps me engaged and keeps me wanting to do uh, the same work every day. In fact, I would like to know how to do it better. Is there better medicines? Are there better programs? Are there better processes? Uh, what can we do to put it together to... Uh, systems together to make stuff better and that's what we're doing now I work with a couple of charities and with the private and public services let's research it let's figure out how we can do things better 
What are some of the most common misconceptions about you or your work? Okay, the biggest one is people coming in and thinking that there's a magic pill for everything. Right? Coming in and say, Doc, I want you to give me a pill that will stop me uh, using drugs forever. And I said, yeah, there is such a pill. It's called cyanide. It's kind of permanent. <laughs> but if you really want to be alive and you're actually going to have to put in effort, and time. And so that's the biggest one as far as I can tell. They all want a magic pill. Just give me something that will make me not feel or not want to have a drink or not want to use drugs or not uh, go out and be compulsive about this behavior or that. Are there any asks or requests uh, for the audience, last parting words, thoughts to take away, to consider, to try? Oh, I'm, I'm open to all things. If they have anybody has heard of or has got great new ways of overcoming addictions, let me know. Um, any upcoming projects that people can uh, look forward to or research papers for, mm. for you? I think at the moment, one of the things that Promises Healthcare is trying to do is uh, develop and set up a, a mental health uh, charity which deals mainly with depression, bipolar and uh, support groups. So support groups, mental health programs and we are trying to see whether we can do a drop-in centre or drop-in cafe so that people with low moods or depression, if they want help, there will be always therapists or counsellors available. Wow, there's a lot of things. Mm. And when, when is, there, is there a date or once, once is there a sequence? Well, it will of... happen within the next year. Wow, okay. Very... We've already done one for, for addictions. It's called We Care Community Services and it's at uh, Ubi, Jalan Ubi. Mm -hmm. Go for it. Do you want to tell, uh, tell people about We Care? Yeah, We Care is great because when, when I was traveling and looking at best programming, I, we managed to get people well for, uh, or detox them in a hospital setting. Then we send them out to the community and we find that they relapse. Mm. So we needed more support services. In other countries, they have drop-in centers, uh, centers where you, while you're in your recovery, you can go and, and have a therapist to talk to in case you're having urges to use or stuff. Uh, there's bookshelves, there's uh, games, there's activities in a safe setting. And so that is We Care Community Services. Great program for people recovering from gambling, addictions, alcohol, drugs. Got it. Um, where can people find you or the latest updates on the interwebs? <laughs> the internet, I guess. Okay, just search my name. Is there, is there a place of gathering of all this information? Promises Healthcare. Okay, Facebook page too. Right? I, I sure hope so. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, we're, we're, we're done. We, Perfect. What's up, people? It's over. As usual, all show notes, links, books can be found on the website, brianvictor.com, Brian with a Y. And if you have any misfits you'd like to hear from them, feel free to drop me an email or if you have any people you'd like to hear in California because that's where I would be. Um, also, please do that. <laughs> Thank you again so much for giving me your time and listening to this episode. Well, have a fantastic week ahead. <laughs>